Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please don't forget to follow us on social media at Snapshots in Hockey History on Facebook and at Snapshots in on Twitter. This is going to be a really, really quick intro. I'm actually on my way to work as I'm recording this. I watched the St. Louis Blues yesterday versus San Jose Sharks. Talk about a smash. Can't believe it. Looks like we might have a St. Louis Blues-Boston Bruins final. And there was an interesting statistic said by one of the announcers last night. In the past six Stanley Cup finals, the team that had the layover the longest, who had a couple days off, lost every single time. So it should be an interesting matchup. We got Chris Felix on the show this week, and Chris and I decided to do a little bit of a show about his time in the Ontario Hockey League. I think people really enjoy this. I've had a lot of requests from people to do shows on the IHL and the AHL and the OHL, and next season we're definitely going to do that. I have some definite good guests lined up already, but I wanted to do one with Chris because we did the great interview with Jeff Tuohy a few weeks ago, so I wanted to give it the vantage point of a player. So we kind of just BS for about 45 minutes, talking about his time with the Sioux Greyhounds, stuff like that. He told some great stories. I think everyone will enjoy this. Also talked a lot about some future NHLers that he played with, including Bob Probert, Ron Francis. So a couple legendary names there. Talks about leaving home as a 16-year-old. I think people will enjoy this one. So we're going to go ahead and cut to that. Here's our interview with Chris Felix. I guess we got to start from the beginning. You're not from the Sioux. How did you wind up getting drafted by the Greyhounds? And, and I mean, how did you make the decision to make the move? Well, it all started. I'm from the uh, Brampton area, which is, uh, you know, your Mississauga, Scarborough, uh, your GTHL area. And uh, I was I was very lucky, very fortunate enough to to be drafted by the Greyhounds. Um, I, I didn't know much about the OHL. I, I knew a little bit about from the Toronto Marlies and your Peterborough Beats. The teams have been around for a long time. And, of course, I'd heard of the Greyhounds because of Gretzky and that, but really never knew where Sault Ste. Marie was. And then... Sure enough, the OHL draft comes, and uh, I uh, I get selected in the fourth round. And mentioned at talk, it was in the fifth round, but let's not uh, go there right now. Yeah, no big deal. He had a pretty pretty successful career. Ricky's a, a good friend of mine. So, sure enough, uh, the Sioux's uh, eight hours from Toronto, so the draft comes, and uh, away we go. My mom and dad uh, bring me up to the Sioux to, to see what everything's all about. And, it was a, it was a quite the, quite the experience. Like I said, first you got to remember it's uh, six hours from Detroit and eight hours from Toronto. So the Greyhounds is the are the biggest ticket in town. That's what the, the people do here all winter and uh, big fan support uh, from the radio to to everything. So when you when you do come, when I'm like my first practice. I bet you there had to be 900 people here. I never even played in front of 900 people, let alone have a practice. Oh, so, so the whole town comes out. Yeah, yeah. Everybody training camp comes, and everybody wants to see the new guys and a few of the old guys, and it's a more or less a four day game, and then it's the the big red and white uh, game on the on the Friday because you start usually on the Monday till till the Friday, and and uh, and everybody wants to get a a good look at uh, the new guys. So you're 15, 16 years old. 
Yeah. I'm assuming you've never really left home, maybe summer camp or something like that, but you're making a decision here to move six hours away. Did you have a conversation with your folks at all? Like, I mean, that couldn't have been an easy decision of just, he's going, you know what I mean? Right. No, it, it, it was a little bit tough, but again, before I ended up coming here, our, our general manager back then was Sam McMaster and, uh, he did a great job. So he came to our house, uh, sat down with myself, my mom and dad, and, uh, it was like, go ahead, ask questions. Okay. How, well, how does school work? Oh, it's very important. The guys, they are going to get their schooling. Uh, we, we take, uh, attendance very we actually got fined if we didn't go to school so that was part of their and then you know who, who am I going to live with and these are the families these are the billets we run a curfew um, the guys get extra tutoring help with school anything they need um, any questions like that were, were asked and, and my parents were, were very there was really nothing that wasn't answered and, and again at the end of the day it was basically up to my decision and uh and I said, well, let's go and see. First of all, I still got to make the team. So right. right there at the beginning, you don't know. So, I guess yeah. I look at it now, and there's so many choices for younger players coming up. Did you have any other choices? Was the NCAA even something on your radar? No, I, I, I that wasn't. And like you said, back then, you had, I think it was a 24-hour rule. So you could come to camp up here. And then in in two days with a with a practice where maybe you did good or bad, you had to decide uh, which way you wanted to go because then you you lose your eligibility to, to go to the uh, NCAA. So that was a big big decision for a lot of guys to 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 to, to decide. But you got to remember, school is good, but you also have to have the marks and the smarts to be able to do that. So a lot of guys say, "Oh, I'm not going to. I'll just go go play Michigan State or Notre Dame." Well, again, you have to make the team, you have to qualify, and you have to have the marks for that too. So it uh, it's something different. Well, especially when you look at nowadays, especially there's so many of the Ivy League schools have teams. You've got to be able to get into Yale. You've got to be able to get into Harvard and Michigan Tech, even BU. These schools are are the high GPAs. I'm sure it was no different back then. So you roll into camp. Your yeah. your first. What is your first experience? I'm assuming you just came from Midget AAA and you talked about an inner squad scrimmage. What's kind of going through your head as a 16 year old playing against men for really the first time? Oh, exactly. So, like I said, the first time. So now we we have our whole team meeting in in, in our gardens. Back then was uh, the Memorial Gardens, and you're meeting people. And again, I'm 16. I'm not even sure if I was shaving yet. Maybe just started. But <laughs> now you got you know 17, 18, like 20 year old. Some guys got beards. Some guys have you know what I mean? A lot of facial hair. You're playing men now. I, I forget my my stats. Maybe a uh, five uh, eleven, 170 pounds compared to you know six two, six three, two twenty five. You're you're playing against men now, so it's quite a quite a quite a difference. And uh, this is the best experience. So at the rink there, uh, we divide into three teams. So the two teams play scrimmage the one team practice our team was practicing uh uh first that that first day so the other two teams were, were uh they were you go to, towards the locker room and the trainer's room was right there and you gotta remember back then it was the the trainer was also the the i don't know guy sharpen the skates they went, they, they went with mostly one guy and a couple of young kids so so we walked down i look right into the trainer's room and i and i see the mike desjardin was our trainer there and i i hear some guy says uh mike you think my nose is broken or do you, what are you thinking <laughs> and i look in and i'm thinking wow that's that's really bad you know white towels there's blood everywhere and meanwhile he was probably fighting this other guy he was getting about six or seven stitches above his eye and 
you know, it was, it was like a bloodbath. I'm like, holy smokes, what am I in for? It's going to be oh crazy. Oh my god! And and I don't, I'm not familiar with this because this was like 1981, 82. So I don't even know what youth hockey in Canada was like. I don't even know what it's like now, let alone then. Was fighting something that didn't start until you reached the junior ranks? Yeah, well, uh, pretty much. You, you know, a little bit of roughing, uh, the odd punch with your glove on uh, back in the day, but you didn't drop your gloves and, and square off and, and fight like you did when I got her. It was, it was, it was, it was an eye opener. I tell you that one. And Terry Crisp was your head coach at the time, and Crispy, of course, would go on to to coach for the Tampa Bay Lightning. And I remember Rob DeMaio was telling me he's kind of an interesting character. What were your experiences like with, like with Crispy? Well, fantastic. He was probably probably the best coach I ever played for, and I and I was fortunate enough to play for uh, you know uh, Dave King, the Olympic pro. That Dave King's probably the smartest hockey person, but Terry Chris is the guy you want to play for. He's a he's a former player. He was uh, part of the Street Bullies. He uh, he he did all his stuff. So you he he knew what it was like to have a long bus trip and uh, when you needed a day off. For Dave King, just more I the better you're going to be, which is not always always true. Get done with your first practice, and I'm assuming that probably mom and dad stayed a day or two, or did they just drop you off? No, they had a couple days to get to help you get adjusted. The... Yeah. So when did you start? Go ahead and move in with your billet family. Uh, probably the the second day that I I, I arrive. Uh, so like I said, they they have a the club has a you know your first rounder was Stevie Graves, uh, uh, Gruel was the second rounder, Bruce Bell, myself talking. So you try and put your higher nerd guys that you think are going to stay. Now you got to remember, I think we had uh, fifteen or eighteen guys plus invites. So they asked some of the other pair. Or other people in the Sioux, would you mind almost volunteering to take a a player for five, ten days and open up your home for them? And and, and that's the way Sioux St. Maria is. So sure enough, everybody gets billeted then. And then if you happen to to make the team as a lower cut, then you find out who which people on the on the parent list would like to keep a player for the full season. So it's it's almost like you stay there. As almost a trial for the billets as well, and then you kind of feel if you, if you like it and kind of feel it out, kind of go from there. Yeah, more or less. But some of them have had players from the past, and some are are brand new. So the people that I had were brand new, never had anybody. And uh, actually, Bruce Bell and myself, they they had room for two two of us, so it did make it easier for them and for us because you I had somebody to talk to and could relate to and but again it only takes a week or two and then the, the people treat you they're almost treat you like a son you can come home dinner's made everything's all set for you they they're, they're hockey people they want you to enjoy your experience too Bruce Bell former defenseman sounds like you guys had a lot in common one thing I've always wondered and this isn't just apply to your first year, really, I guess your entire career. Did you ever hear any horror stories about billet families where things just didn't work out or, 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 or it was like a nightmare for a player? Yeah, it, it does happen. Not, not very often. You got to remember, the, the, I, I couldn't use the amount. Let's say that people are getting uh, even, even a hundred dollars a month. You're not going to feed two to one uh, adult hockey player with that much money. They had a couple other perks where they, they, they also got a season tickets. Right. They used to have milk back then, where they were de- delivered free milk for the players and all that. So you're 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 not in it to make money. But now, when you talk about a horror about other land, they're in it to make money. So 
I'm coming home with an Italian family. You know, it's a uh, carte blanche. We're have pasta, meatballs, chicken, all that that costs money. Where you're going home, maybe having a hamburger and French fries, which is, uh, you know, not a healthy meal for by a no professional means. athlete. Yeah, yeah, by no means. So it's just quite a difference depending on what family you get to. So you make camp as a 16-year-old, which in the Ontario Hockey League, that was pretty much unheard of. I, I know it is today. Was it just as hard back then? Yeah, it, it, it was. Like I played defense. I had uh, four 19-year-old defensemen, uh, uh, Gord Deneen, who ended up playing with the Islanders, sure. uh, Jim, Pavise, Jim Pavise with St. Louis. Uh, another one of our the captain of our team was uh, Dirk Ruder. He was a second-round pick to the Buffalo Sabres. So, and then uh, the other defenseman was um, Steve Smith, first-round pick to the Flyers. So it was pretty tough to crack the lineup back then. So they kept Bruce and myself, two young guys, to have somebody else to play play you know for the future and up and coming and uh, it, 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 it worked out well so now you've made the jump you've played a couple preseason games what's your first reaction when you finally get into a game and you ended up playing more games than Tockett I know we're kind of comparing you to him you ended up playing 66 he played 59 what yeah. was the hockey like compared to what you were used to uh it was it was it was Totally, totally different. Like, uh, again, you're going back to you're practicing an hour and a half to sometimes two hours every single day right after school. Where back in minor hockey is, you know, two, three times a week for an hour, little, little pickup here. Now practice is, is structured like it is pro right now. You know, warm up, shooting drills, get the goalies warm up, uh, two on ones, three on twos, then to breakouts, then split again, work some special teams at the other end. So you really had to, to pay attention and know what was going on and what drills. And now, let's say we're doing breakouts. Well, you're sending a, a, another line to to pressure you to break out properly to more game-like. That's stuff that you never, you, I've never done. We uh, never had to. Oh, my God. And and you talked about talent on this team. Ron Francis, future Hall of Famer, was out there. He Ronnie was playing Francis, with you yep. guys as well. And I'm curious, you see a guy like him, he was probably a couple of years older, and you had to defend against him. Did you have any, have any situations where he kind of made you look like a, a Bantam? Yeah, definitely, definitely, and what and and, and again, firstly, you had to, you also had to adapt to the speed because it was a lot quicker and the size and the strength of these guys. Now, the older guys, you remember, they've been playing together a little bit. They're they're, they're it's intimidating. We have, look, we're lucky because we had a veteran uh, defenseman with us who was more like a like a father figure and a, like a police figure that took care of us, knowing that. We did have talent, but uh, we weren't there for the muscle. So it, it was nice to have that that sort of a, a feeling. And, and going back to that, so you don't get that. You talk about, I don't know if you want to use hazing or initiation or... or <laughs> that was my next question. I wish uh, that was my list is you're 16 years old. You're a rookie. Do yeah. any of the guys kind of have some fun with you in an innocent way or maybe not so innocent? Yeah, like, uh, you know what... Uh, the way hazing has gone now compared to back then, it's part of part of the game. And, I, and the reason I say that, what we what they used to do back in our day, we we had a cane in in the dressing room after practice, and then the veterans, you know, you'd come in, you wouldn't know the cane was in your stall, and they'd start talking. And hey, uh, you know, uh, uh, Joe, John, I heard the doctor's coming today. The doctor? No, the doctor's coming. Well, let's look around. Sure enough, if the cane's in your thing. Boom! You were taped to the table. You had marker all over you. <laughs> Va Vaseline. Uh, you had your private shaved a little bit. Uh, but I tell you, when it was over, you felt you felt part of the team because then the guys were, 
you know, and and, and it, it changed on the ice because then again, I'm a small guy. We're playing in another city. Sure enough, some big guy comes and takes advantage of me, a little face wash or something. Boom, in comes Jim Pavese, grabs this guy by the helmet, almost rips his head off, and you're like, wow, thanks, uh, teammate. Uh, <laughs> you appreciate that. Yeah, I was going to say you really understand that enforcer role. And the OHL, especially in the 80s, in my opinion, was a breeding ground for the NHL. I mean, your team alone – We've talked about so many guys that went on to have careers, Gordonine, Ron Francis, uh, Rick Tockett, yourself, just to name a few. Yeah. But yep. it was also an Ironman league. That in the Western League, fighting was a thing. Do you remember when your first fight was? Well, I only had a few, but uh, I, 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 I don't even really think it was a fight. It was kind of a, like nowadays when they fight, I, that's one thing I do like and I respect. It, nowadays, you we look at each other you know do you want to go sure enough you drop the stick we get our gloves you get adjusted and away you go back in the 80s you more or less jumped the guy which was was, wasn't really fair and one of crispy's famous lines back in the day he says if you're gonna go don't ask for his birth certificate it was it was almost like like almost like sucker the guy like like if you make eye contact boom drop your gloves and just start throwing so it was it was pretty it was pretty, pretty Pretty, pretty mean back then. Oh, it was a different era. And of course, then buckets would come off, I'm assuming. So you're, you're, you're fighting without a helmet on on ice. And I, I just imagine as a 16-year-old, it's like last week or three weeks ago, we saw the Ovechkin versus um, oh, the Russian kid. Yep. It, was, it was a boy fighting a man. And that's the impression I'm getting from you of the OHL is that you had things like that happen. Yeah, 100%. There was a little bit of respect that they knew. you got to know, again, like the NHL, you're not going to fight uh, the star players, but, uh, but the, you know, the, the singers sing and the dancers dance. And, and again, back in the 80s, uh, if I fought you and it went sort of one-sided, we were chirping each other in the penalty box. You left your helmet and your gloves in there. Boom, opened the door, <laughs> met, it, met it center ice, went again. And uh, I, I seen them, like, do that twice uh, like crazy and then uh, when back in the 80s if you weren't too much a fighter and this guy was you know chasing you around a little bit you could you could get out of the way but now when it's a stoppage in play there's nowhere to hide especially if you're on the road and it's like oh oh here we go so it, it was a little nerve-wracking oh i'm sure and i bet it was even more nerve-wracking when you would have the rivalry come to town and you, and you touched on this the crowds, I mean, you had the Kitchener Rangers, which were led by Brian Bellows at the time. They were probably a rivalry of the Sioux. But who were some of the other teams that when they came to town on Friday night, the town stopped to come in and, and check things out? Wow, that, that's one thing, though, in the Sioux. Uh, we never, we, it's, full, it's full house all the time. They, doesn't matter when. They, doesn't matter when. But back then, uh, the Oshawa had a pretty tough team with Tony Tanti and Joe Sorella. They had a, uh, a crazy uh, Tobogabon back then. Um, like you said, Kitchener come. They still had Scott Stevens with Al McGinnis, with Brian Bellows. Mm. Uh, 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 Peterborough was pretty tough. with uh, Stevie Y was still in the league uh, right then in the 80s. Um, there was a lot of uh, – Bill LaForge was a crazy coach on him. He had the Brantford Alexanders with, with Probert, Shane Corson. Uh, uh, there, was, there, was a, there was a bunch of – everybody had their, their nut bars, you'd say. And you eventually ended up playing with Probert towards the end of your time with the Sioux. How did he come uh, become part of the team? 
Well, that, that was a great uh, accusation for us. We, were, we finally had enough talent that we were, you got to decide in, in whether you can, you're going to be a buyer or a seller, the same as the NHL nowadays, if you're going to go for it. So you have to give up some of your 17 or 18 stars to get a 19-year-old just to make a run for Memorial Cup. And uh, uh, Bobby was in Brantford. Their team wasn't really going anywhere. And uh, our guys decided to, to pursue him and, and did make the trade. And then with Bobby coming, uh, it gave the whole team that much more, you know, power and strength and uh, more room for everybody to play. So it was uh, it was fantastic uh, when Bobby came. And he also had a pair of hands on him, right? I mean, it wasn't just like that he could throw him. He also wasn't bad when it came to scoring goals, especially in junior, correct? Oh, correct. Like, that was the other thing. You got, you know, your, your fighters and that sit on the bench for half a game to get the tap, go and fight that guy. Well, the, the hard part was Bobby was playing a regular shift on our first line. He was playing with uh, Wayne Gruel, who's a 50-goal scorer. Graham Bonner was a 60-goal scorer. And there's Probert uh, chipping in with 40. Well, you, you can't be a, uh, the fighter and, uh, and the play. So, now, the, the guys that wanted to take a run, take a chance at Bobby. Yeah, you've been sitting for almost 15 minutes. Bobby had two back-to-back power plays. And a shoot. now you're going to try and fight him when he's tired. But, again, Bob was always willing to go. He'd pick his spots. And if you happened to win that one, well, he was going to rest up and get you the next time. So he was he, he was incredible. He, he had everything. That said, when he went, ended up going to Detroit and played the uh, policeman for Stevie Y, he, he got his share of goals, too. Yeah, no, the guy was was talented. I still can't get over leaving home at 16 years old to go basically play hockey against men. You're living six, eight hours away from your family. And especially in the 80s, there was no internet. The only way to really, I guess, keep in touch is via the phone or snail mail. So it's definitely an interesting experience. And I'm glad Chris came on to share that with us. We'll be back for part two of our interview with Chris on Thursday at 8 a.m. In the meantime, have a great week. We'll catch you on Thursday at 8 a.m. Talk to you soon.